0: Australian colonial settlers have a long history of cutting down forests and clearing land for farming and other commercial activities. We know more now how destructive that is and what effect it's had on the natural environment, as well as the ongoing effects of the dispossession of the traditional owners. Scientist Dr Penny Van Oosterzee and her husband Noel have spent many years now regenerating rainforest on their property, a chunk of land in the Atherton Tablelands of far north Queensland called Thearchy. And that led Penny, who's also an adjunct professor at James Cook University, to research the history of the land and the people who've lived on it. The resulting book is called Cloud Land The Dramatic Story of Australia's Extraordinary Rainforest People and Country. Penny van Osterzee, welcome to Life Matters. Good morning, Hilary. How are you? Good. Tell us what brought you to Theakey in the first place. Was it a, a long association with the area?
1: Uh, no, not at all. Uh, I spent most of uh, my working life in the Northern Territory and we were in Darwin and it was just too hot. So we, I was looking around for a place to to go to and this came up on the internet. It was as simple as that.
0: And when you visited it, it sounded like one look out the window was all it took.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a property on the headwaters of the Johnston River on the very top of a. Uh, something called the Melanda volcano and we walked into the back of a house and you couldn't actually see the rainforest and there were huge windows when we walked in the door and there was this jungled landscape Um, and it was look looked like it was just blowing shapes of clouds into the air and it seemed like it was alive and that was it we were in love.
0: Yep, you and your husband exchanged glances. All right, better buy it then, and that's why it's called the cloud forest as well. That particular kind of landscape. What kinds of animals live there, Penny?
1: Well, we we're in an upland rainforest, so Siaki has is a hotspot for all the ringtail possums and lemuroid tree kangaroo, and thirteen all thirteen of the endemic wet tropic birds.
0: And some of them have been there for a really long time, haven't they? You did some research into the oldest species, and and how many of them are still around. What did you find?
1: The rainforest itself is Gondwanan. In a way, um, what happened was with, when Australia moved away from Antarctica, the rainforest it was a rainforested landscape, and the rainforest kept track of 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 its environment. And to do that, it actually needed to go up mountains and in the wet tropics where. The rainforest isn't in, actually in the highest mountain as part of the of the of the uh, of Queensland.
0: We're speaking with Dr Penny Van Osterse, who uh, acquired, loved, researched and is reforesting part of this forest uh, landscape in far north Queensland. Penny, it sounds breathtakingly beautiful, but as you describe so powerfully in the book, it also has its hazards. Tell me about the first time you had a little uh, stroll around the property and and discovered some of these.
1: (laughs) Actually, one of the hazards is doing this interview. I'm standing out (laughs) in a raincoat. Because we're in a black spot uh, in terms of our reception, and the only place I can get a good reception is outside here. So it's it's raining, it's misty. <laughs> so even day to day life is a, a bit of a hazard. Yeah, but that that time, you know, I was naive to Australian rainforest, just like uh, most people are, and like I'd come from the savannas and before that the desert. We bought this place and I thought, oh, let's just follow the boundaries. The boundaries go through some of the densest rainforests in the (laughs) wet tropics. And we ended up crashing through forests and I found this little uh, waterhole. It was muddy because the neighbour had been logging and so there was sediment in it. But I thought, oh, no, it's our own little waterhole. So I took off all my clothes and thought that I would just step in and it would be a rocky base. But, of course, it was just sediment. And I sank down to my stomach and it was disgusting. And uh, I clambered out, sat down on a log. Of course, it's what you think you're going to do. You sit down on a log. But here, yakki has attitude. And the forest uh, had a sort of, uh, you know, army of mites that craw- crawled up me. But you can't see them. They're tiny little things. And I had hundreds and hundreds of these little light bites uh, when, by the time I got back home.
0: Oh, And we'll just leave the whole, the whole subject of ticks to one side as well, because there are some terrible tick stories in your book as well. Cloudland, it's called. But it's so much more than a collection of interesting stories about this land. It goes way back in time. And also, Penny, you talked to the traditional owners of that land that you now live on. What did you learn from them?
1: The well, it's a, it's a, not a happy story. Uh, the traditional owners were displaced from the land pretty pretty quickly, and um, it took a bit of time to find them. And we spent I spent a lot of time with with the old people, with some old people, Ernie Raymond, and also the younger generation of people. And what I found out from them was that Europeans really didn't bother at all to document how traditional peoples lived on the land. And traditional peoples knew the land like the back of your hand. They knew what to eat, how to look after it, how to manage it. Um, And that was never documented. Uh, And that was just such a tragedy. Well, and you learnt too how the creation
0: stories uh, that the traditional owners have about some of the uh, volcanoes in the area tally with the geological record, don't they?
1: There is one uh, known creation story of of the crater lakes uh, of the Atherton Tablelands, and because of the long memory of traditional owners, they're, they're, that last volcanic eruption happened about ten thousand years ago, and there are stories of that. So there are stories of of the volcano erupting, and it was to do with boys who were who were who were becoming men, and they. They weren't allowed to go out of, out of the camp and they did go out of the camp. And as a result, um, the volcano erupted in fury. And so those stories have come down to us today. So that just talks to the long, long memory of, of Aboriginal people on land. Well, and as you write, it was a bit of a shock
0: to Aboriginal people who came back to the land that you're on after farming had wrought its changes. What happened to the rainforest when farming began there?
1: Well, the rainforest was cleared. It's, it wasn't actually an easy task to clear rainforest. It was this absurd policy of the time, of a, a yeoman's ideal of, you know, small, close farms, happy, smiling homesteads, plump wives and, you know, rosy-cheeked children. But, of course, this place, it, it, you know, isn't suited to that. So people spent decades clearing the rainforest and then trying to establish industries such as dairy which failed um and so much of the effort Tablelands and those areas cleared just fell to weeds and it was really only in the last part of the last century where amalgamation of small enterprises took place that any industry actually made any money so it was cleared almost for nothing and red
0: cedar was a big industry for a br- period of time wasn't it a very brief period in geological time how did that affect the land
1: the, it was like a gold rush. There were just uh, men mainly who, who just wanted to earn money and they were a rough and tumble lock, uh, lot and they came up to the Atherton Tablelands, which was the last place where we had the red cedar, and they just took every red cedar they could. They dropped it down and because you couldn't actually get it to the coast, there wasn't a railway here at the time, most of the red cedar just lay in the forest, rotting. So again, it was another bad policy, bad ideology that led to the destruction not only of the rainforest people but the very rainforest itself.
0: Yeah, you're right about some of the very nasty interactions between the people working the land, the settlers working the land and the traditional owners as well. I mean, this is such a well-rounded story, this book, Cloudland, that Dr. Penny Van Osterdey has written. She's an adjunct professor at James Cook University uh, and has been working on this patch of land in the Atherton Tablelands, trying to reforest it. Penny, how was forestry, shall we say, managed in Queensland during the 20th century especially? Because that was a big time for clearing wasn't it?
1: Well the forest needed to be cleared that was the, the ideology of the time so forestry was an incidental industry uh, and like I said with the with the cedar it was just cleared and left to rot but when the railway came in the 1905 or 1910 logging between, became a, a lucrative industry and, and logs were taken out of the forest and um, And what happened as time moved on, the forest was to be cleared for industry. So the idea was never to conserve the forest. And then there was this large debate, uh, fight almost, between foresters who had become an industry in the middle part of last century who said that forestry was actually a livelihood and you should actually keep the forest. And those closer settlement advocates who said, no, we've got to clear it. And there was a Royal Commission in 1931 which determined that the, there were actually too many trees. So we had to clear the forest. Wow. Uh, so it, was, it was a pretty scary time. Um, and at the time, they set the, the quota for, for, for logging mills at the maximum amount that you could take logs. And that became the sustainable quota, (laughs) nothing sustainable about it. So you had 1,300 mills taking as many logs as they could. So it was a pretty horrific time until 1988 when it became World Heritage.
0: Well, yes, and you write about this long and very uh, smart uh, protest movement that eventually resulted in that. But was that problem solved for the forest once logging stopped in 1988? Does it all just grow back? No, no, no.
1: the forest that's conserved is largely that in steep, on steep country and in, in the mountainous part. So that area that could be cleared for, for crops has been cleared. Uh, has been cleared. And uh, it's been a really difficult task to actually bring it back. So what we got was a 50-hectare he- paddock. Plus, we've got 130 hectares of intact forest and 50 hectares paddock. And we looked at it and we decided, well, <laughs> it's hard to clear it, but how the hell do you bring it back? So we decided to actually look at a cost-effective way of doing that. There's been very little money given by government for grants. And so the new way, perhaps, of restoring land is through carbon trading. And so what we're trying to do is look at very cost-effective ways of bringing the forest back. Well, yeah. I mean, what what are they? Because I've
0: heard figures bandied about of up to $60,000 a hectare to reforest. What did you come up with?
1: Uh, less than that much less than that (laughs) we can do it for about eight to five thousand dollars a hectare um by actually using the agency of the forest itself so we create a framework for the forest to use to re-establish so it, it it has some agency itself also what we what we've done is reduce the amount of pesticide use um space trees a little bit further apart than the method used up here and um, make sure that you could only plant in wet ground. So much of the work is really common sense. And if you use that common sense approach, you can actually bring the price right down and it becomes very cost effective to trade carbon. It's more cost effective to do that on flatter ground than it is uh, to, to graze cattle, for instance. So, Penny,
0: w- what does the Aki look like now compared to when you moved in?
1: Oh, it's completely different. When we moved in, you looked down the main valley and it was completely cleared. Um, and now it's a forest. And I'm looking at a slope now that's that's growing up against the main remnant, and it's, it's actually hard to tell the difference between that planted forest and the intact forest behind. So that's... Um, We we do have cattle and I've got some moving toward me Um, and and they are grazing on the flatter ground where it is a little bit cost effective to have cattle and the forests are on the steeper ground. And so we have a mixed economy uh, and it's an example of the sorts of economy that we have to move toward.
0: Well, yeah, how urgent is it, Penny, that we get some certainty on a carbon price in Australia if more people are going to be moving towards doing this sustainably on their properties too?
1: I think we're getting certainty now with the new policy announcements by, by the current government. Uh, particularly, I, I don't really want to go into detail of policy because it's a little bit complicated. Mm-hmm. But we have a, we have a safeguard mechanism where large corporations have to reduce their carbon and sometimes they can't. And so they have to buy offsets. And this is an example of an offset. So the price is going to go up to $75 reasonably quickly. And at that price, it becomes very lucrative to plant trees and sell carbon. But what we've tried to do is make sure that the carbon also has biodiversity benefits.
0: Yes, yeah, it's really interesting reading through your book and seeing that it's not just a warm fuzzy feeling about bringing back some uh, some greenness to the slopes. It's a huge range of impacts and benefits across the board. Dr. Penny Van Osterze, thanks so much for telling us a little bit about your little bit patch of cloud forest. Thanks very much, Hilary. Thanks for weathering the rain. Dr Penny Van Osterse, adjunct professor at James Cook University and author of Cloudland, this book about her uh, property on the Atherton Tablelands. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's
1: call and text features.